Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And this week, I'll be reporting from Nashville, Tennessee. Though reporting may not be the right word, as this one feels more like a summer vacation podcast. You see, every summer, a Nashville pharmaceuticals tycoon, I'll call him Mike, convenes about a half dozen or so obsessive board gamers at his board gaming compound in the Nashville suburb city of Lebanon. And for the last few years, I've been lucky enough to count myself among the invited guests. These trips aren't just a great chance to play games and visit one of America's great tourism cities, it's also my annual chance to reconnect in person with Quillette alumnus editor Colin Wright and his girlfriend, Quillette-published journalist Christina Buttons. Regular readers of Quillette will remember Colin as a PhD evolutionary biologist turned writer who now runs the popular substack Reality's Last Stand, which he uses to fight back against those seeking to replace our biological understanding of sex with self-described gender identity. This year, we met up for breakfast at the Flat Tire Diner near Andrew Jackson's old Hermitage estate, which I happened to be visiting that morning. And I decided to record the conversation, in which we discussed why the couple decided to move to Nashville, what the substack life is like, and the fight against so-called gender ideology more generally. And just to warn you, the Flat Tire Diner is a popular place, so you'll hear a fair amount of background noise from other diners, some of whom, as you'll learn, are quite young. Is this how you imagined your life when you moved here? Or did you imagine it'd be more like eight hours of work and then like country music karaoke? Did you imagine more of like a Nashville lifestyle when you moved here? One of the things that really interested me here was when I was visiting downtown the first time, I usually like to Google uh, local distilleries and about 30 popped up on my on my phone. So that was a big selling point for me just because I like that type of stuff. So. Uh, I like the the whiskey bar, moonshine bar type type thing, and they had a good food culture. They had a good bar culture, so those were the main selling points for me, I guess. We haven't really made friends, so we don't do a lot outside of the apartment. We need to put ourselves out there more. But we always visit with people when they're in town. That's actually been a good part of Nashville is that a lot of people come through Nashville. Like we have the trigonometry guys, Francis Foster, Constantine Kisson, they came by. Uh, a lot of people who are going to get interviews at the Daily Wire, they come into town, they'll ping us. So it's kind of a good place to be because a lot of people are coming in and out that we know. And so it's we, we do get a lot of people. I mean, you're, you're here. If you move closer to the airport, if you actually moved into the Howard Johnsons, people would just be able to stay with you like during their connecting flight. It sounds like a very interstitial life here. Are you going to be living here in 20 years? Yeah, I'm going to be house hunting pretty soon here. So, But we have this really nice apartment overlooking a lake and we live next to a river and the river walk is connected to our complex so we get out and walk this beautiful scenic walk sometimes once or twice a day and then we work and we play with the cats and that's that's our life well i didn't expect this to be so sad (laughs) it's not sad (laughs) look my life in toronto isn't that different they called tennessee the what is it, the Bible Belt belt buckle or whatever. So 
if I were trying to convince my wife to move here, like that'd be the first thing she would say. Guns, Jesus, Republican stuff. Are you sure we're cool with that? I'd say the city isn't isn't much like that. I mean, it's, it quickly turns into that when you get out of Nashville. By the way, I'm staying in Lebanon nearby. Probably like that. It's very much like that. Oh yeah, yeah. smaller you, you, towns. Yeah. Outside you just get a few of miles city. outside of town. That's there's some blue it, it districts cha- It changes here. very quickly. They say that Nashville is kind of purple. I don't know, but we just don't interact with that many people to know what their politics are. I've been here three times in the last three years. I've never been downtown. I've never been to the music bar, but I. It sounds like. The downtown food and music scene is kind of like you might as well be living almost in a place like Las Vegas, which is kind of apolitical. Is that the case? They called it Nash Vegas. Nash Vegas, I like that. That's what they they call that that area, downtown Music Row. I mean, we we'll we'll walk people up and down it when when they come to visit, but I'm not I'm not really crazy about all the insanity down there. It's kind of overwhelming. Well, Nash Vegas is better than Smashville, which was what I've been saying. <laughs> Although, tell me about life online because you're both online people. Do you like have different command centers in your apartment? Yeah, I'm in I'm in the bedroom and he's in, he has an office and we just sometimes we don't even say barely anything to each other all day and then at the end of the day you know we talk but we're both just kind of in our own worlds he's working on his articles for substack and i'm doing is that ever like you meet at the photocopy machine or the water cooler and (laughs) no we meet in the kitchen (laughs) (laughs) when we're feeding the cats and yeah wow life in smashville tell me colin you and i worked together at quillette although it was kind of like what you're describing where it was an online. All online, yeah. Yeah, so you're like now part of the illustrious group of post-Quillette success stories. So tell me about Substack, because at Quillette, my experience, you probably had a similar experience where there's a lot of autonomy. Claire Lehman, my boss, your ex-boss, hires smart people, and kind of gives them a lot of leeway to, to explore their own intellectual curiosities. But at the end of the day, you have the discipline of saying, like, I report to a boss. What's it like... As a substacker, because kind of you're a one-man business, what's that like? Like, there's no, there's no boss to correct you or approve your, you know, your monthly budget or whatever. Like, what's that? What's that been like for you? you know, the, the worst part is not having John K. edit my articles before I publish them. <laughs> oh, that's, I can't go over that's them. So, in- did uh, you hear that every time? <laughs> I think you know, working for outlets like. Quillette had really helped me be able to do what I'm doing right now because I can see how a publication works. I know how to reach out to people to commission articles. I had some experience editing pieces, which is a very different thing from writing academic articles, what I was doing, you know, five years ago. You know, it was really stressful early on when I I started Substack in about 2020, and it was just sort of this side hustle, you know, like, like, maybe I can make a few grand on the side. Um, and then it became apparent after I was working for a fair and some other places that I didn't want to have anyone who's able to cut me off from any type of income. And I was working at fair and I had like a, they slashed my pay in half because they were having budgeting issues and I was in the process of looking for houses and it's like, well, this isn't an optimal situation here. Um, and so I just decided to go all in on my sub stack. This happened to coincide with when I got banned from Etsy and PayPal and so that got a lot of people to initially just sort of sign up for myself. Just to be clear, you got banned, I mean, essentially for saying the biological sex is a thing? I had a few products that said reality's last stand, and they included these hate symbols, that it's like a male symbol and a female symbol on them. <laughs> and uh, so I got banned for, uh, I think it was inciting violence against protected groups. To be fair to those companies... 
they went through a kind of social panic about this stuff. Do you think in 2023 you'd be banned for that? Do you think they, they would stay in policy? Laura, the detransitioner, de- so. yeah. Laura, who I just bought a hat from, she just got some products removed from Etsy that said funky human female. She has a funky human male shirt still up, but funky human female. I hope it turns back the other way. You know, it's in a way it's it's freeing to be on Substack because I, I, I like to describe myself now as kind of being uncancelable, but in a way that's that's not totally true because I'm still reliant on certain payment processors like Stripe right now. Like I got banned from PayPal. <laughs> But Stripe is now, you know, that's what Substack uses. And a lot of us are getting donations from DonorBox, which is based on Stripe. And Media Matters came after DonorBox, noting that people like me and the organization Gays Against Groomers and Billboard Chris are using DonorBox because PayPal kicked people off. And so, you know, there is certain pressure points that they could potentially go to. So in a way, it's precarious because I am all in on certain, you know, I'm, I'm... I need certain payment processors to to fund me, but it's also freeing because, you know, as long as those are in place, nobody can fire me, nobody can tell me what I can and can't write, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm freeing, I can live anywhere. I think maybe a lot of our listeners will be familiar with Kira Bell, the famous British detransitioner, a teenage girl who, by her account, rushed into transition at the Tavistock. Is there an American Kira Bell? Yeah, I mean, we have two detransitioners who started lawsuits against Kaiser Permanente for transitioning them as minors. That's Chloe Cole and Layla Jane. Some of the same doctors are involved in both lawsuits. You know, they, they fed their parents the same false dilemma. Would you rather have a dead daughter or a live son? It's just so difficult. There would be so many more lawsuits if not for the statute of limitations. You have to regret it pretty quickly. What is the difference between a detransitioner and a desister? A detransitioner is someone who has taken medical steps and a desister is someone who's socially transitioned, adopted a trans identity, changed pronouns, hair, appearance, and then but later decided that they didn't feel like they wanted to maintain that identity. My understanding is that sometimes some of these detransitioners, they get shunned by their former social groups or online communities where, you know, maybe previously had been encouraging them to be yeah. out and proud with their trans identity and then they're treated like um, uh, an apostate. Yeah, I mean, it's it's insane seeing some of the comments that they get. People are so cruel to them just online. And it, it makes them a lot of times so overwhelmed that they shut down their account, they delete their video, they just... It makes data collection harder because then an advocacy group will say, well, we did a poll of people who received this kind of affirming treatment. 99% of them said that was awesome, but... Right. There's always a huge loss to follow up when we're talking about studies of, of detransition and regret. So a lot of times there's, you know, up to like 40% lost a follow-up and it's then there's another study i think lisa Littman did that said about like 75 percent of detransitioners did not tell their doctor or healthcare provider that they had detransitioned so as far as they know in some cases i guess there's shame involved right because they're they got all this positive attention maybe and support maybe they feel almost like they betrayed these people who supported them and yeah they just... that was a that was a common theme in this survey that I recently did. There is a lot of social stigma involved, and they, you know, they 
They lose their community and friend group. If they're lucky, they find each other. But, the, you know, they're they're dealing with this, like, medical trauma. They're healing. I mean, they. I can't even imagine what that's like to think that you were born in the wrong body for a period of time, that you made all of these changes to your body. And then yet you think, like, what have I done? My breasts are gone. Like, But it's really the medical professionals. One of the most interesting insights from my survey, which is not out yet, I asked specific questions about things that their healthcare providers told them. And I was something around like 80%, 85%. Their healthcare providers told them that they had a medical condition that required medical treatment. They didn't provide an alternative pathway. They thought this was their only choice. And they, they told them that they, you know, were born transgender. It was a fixed state there was nothing that they can do to change it the only option was to medically transition and i think this is just i mean it's horrific that doctors are telling patients this i recently learned a word it refers to a medical condition brought about by clinical iatrogenic the intervention causes the underlying issue or exacerbates it so the condition is an artifact of the medical professional who tells you that you have the condition and they trust i mean these are a lot of times you know teenagers or very young adults they just they implicitly trust their doctor and if their doctor tells them they have a condition that requires this treatment they are going to choose it and what was the percentage of the detransitioners whose doctors told them that they had the opposite sex yeah. brain in their body? 49%. 49%. They said they had a male brain in a female body or a female brain in a male body, depending on what sex they were. But And it's based on these stupid studies didn't control for confounding variables like sexual attraction. And now a very brief interruption so I can point you to some of our other great Quillette journalism. That includes our website, Quillette.com, where you can find an abundance of great journalistic essays, including, this week, my colleague Jamie Palmer's blockbuster, The Lab Leak Illusion. Also, if you're looking for more Quillette podcast content, please check out our other podcast, Quillette Cetera, starring my boss, Claire Lehman, and my colleague, Zoe Booth. And now, back to my discussion with Colin Wright and Christina Buttons. Normally, I have to say, well, you know, none of us are biologists, but we happen to have a biologist with us. Colin, is there any basis to the idea of a male and female brain? Yeah, there's a few ways people look at it. The incorrect way would be to say that brains are categorically sort of this blue or pink, you know, type of thing, that there's this essential property that's either male or female about someone's brain. More realistically, male and female brains are just the brains that happen to exist inside the bodies of males and females. And then there's, there's sex differences between males and females on average in their, in their brains, just as there are different selection pressures on males and females. To, prenatal you know, testosterone. Yeah, there's prenatal testosterone can influence how the brain develops. There's genetic factors that influence different brains. I, I like to speak about brains as being sort of the main difference is how masculinized or feminized they are there's overlap in every single trait we have like you can look at somebody's hands and there's ways you can measure how masculine your hands are by like the digit ratios this actually feeds into this idea and we've all seen those overlapping bell curves that says biological sex is a spectrum 
So from what you're saying, if I truncated the audio right here, I'd be like, well, there you have it. Colin Wright says that sex is a spectrum. That's not sex itself. That's just sex-related traits. You know, sex can be a binary thing, but we don't think height is binary. It's not like all males are all taller than females. There's this distribution. We wouldn't say, oh, this person is, you know, six foot four. That person must be male. Like, on, on average, they're going to be because that's anomalous for a woman to be that tall. But, you know, we can recognize that this, the downstream consequences and traits related to sex are not the same thing as sex itself. Yeah, the sex-related traits are, are very much on a spectrum, but that's not the same thing as saying that sex itself Why don't you define sex? Just for everybody. Yes. The yeah. best definition. Yeah. So your, your sex is just related to the type of sex cell, sperm or ova that your primary sex organs are organized around to produce. From reading the literature, one, the political literature, one might get the sense there are mashups of sperm and ova. Is there any kind of third gamete? There aren't. I mean, you can get some sperm that have like multiple tails on them. So that's, some people have this, uh, and I think as males age, they tend to have a higher proportion of these, but there's still like a, a subset of, of the type of sperm you have. There are species that have sort of sperm dimorphism, where they have smaller ones and larger ones that try to block other sperm exactly. and things like that. Because <laughs> whenever uh, you read in this, this literature, it very quickly goes into like, well, there's this fungus that has 17 sexes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or there's some kind of fish. Like, they're always talking clownfish, about... Clownfish, yeah. That? Clownfish. I always talking about clownfish. That's Biology. because clownfish, they do change their sex throughout their life. They're sequential hermaphrodites, so they start out as male. Humans cannot do that. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, the, we had for Pride Month, I think it was the London Museum, their national museum. They had a, a Pride tweet where they talked about the, the Maori loghead wrasse or something that was this fish. And there's the, for some reason, Pride Month had to be celebratory with this fish's biology, which seems to imply that that's somehow related to humans in any way because this fish can change their sex and this needs to be celebrated alongside but humans. But fish can do a lot of things that we can't. There's a, yeah. there's a jellyfish that can feasibly live forever if it doesn't get eaten because it reverts back to a polyp stage. My undergrad degree is in evolution, ecology, and biodiversity. So like the whole biodiversity aspect of these things. Like I love Maori wrasse yeah. and clownfish and all these examples that are brought up. I just, I love it for the biodiversity of it, but it's... It doesn't satisfy kind of their agenda, what they're trying to imply when they bring these things up, which is that this says something about humans. Do you ever, like, lose your composure a bit? The fact that you're a PhD biologist, and maybe sometimes in online conversations or whatnot, you're, like, being lectured to by lay people when it comes to health sciences about, like, well, what you don't get about mitochondria is... Yeah, I mean, it annoys the hell out of me. I don't, I don't lose it. Like, I'm not going off on people on social media. I'm not, like visibly angry um but it is i mean it's the reason why i talk about this type of stuff it's i think it erodes the public trust in science when you see people saying this these provably false things and you know i i wanted to be a science popularizer i wanted to be a teacher i wanted to you know i was inspired to become a scientist by people like dawkins and carl sagan who were just these great science popularizers so i never thought i'd have to be just going back and explaining just like this truly basic biology to people because I mean my yeah. my dissertation was on the collective personalities and social insects and arachnid societies and that's really cool stuff that's like at the frontier of you know human knowledge and it's fun to teach about that type of stuff but then when I look back and see that why am I teaching my class about wasp queen personalities and how this relates to their survival in the colonies and nature 
when half the people in my class don't know what a male and a female is. Could you see yourself going back into academia once this gender fever dream passes over us? Not as, like, a primary researcher. I, I could see myself maybe just wanting to teach yeah. some classes here and there about things. I'd actually like to develop my own class that's you know, the evolution of sex and sex differences and that type of thing, just... <laughs> Uh, you know, for my own, I've I've had an offer to teach like a course at Ralston College before, so I might take up some of these things in the future moving forward. Yeah, I think that'd be fun. I like classes, but you know, one thing I get to do now because I have a Substack, I I started a YouTube channel. I think it would probably do okay just based on the kind of people who know who I am now. Um, I can reach way more people now and teach about biology than I could have if I just had a classroom that had you know 50 students a year or something uh, cycling through. So, in a way, I, I can I can be that science educator now. I can reach a much bigger audience. You know, I thought I'd be teaching a wider spectrum of biology, but instead I'm teaching a large number of people one or two very important things. <laughs> so, uh, I'd, I'd like to expand and, and touch on more topics that I think are fascinating. Maybe I'll talk about collective personalities and social insects again at some point, just as a popular science writer or something. Christina, let me come back to you because Colin was talking about, well, he can't be canceled now because he runs a substack. But you've, you've shown, or at least you've reported on how, I guess this can infect any kind of movement organization, right? I kind of have a problem with a lot of the rhetoric online, the way they people talk about trans issues. It's it's become also very tribal. and Are you pressured to adopt a more extreme yes. anti-trans identity? Yes. Sometimes I'll publish something, and in the comments, they're retweeting me, but like with a comment that I don't really feel comfortable with. You know, here's John Kay striking a blow against those perverts or whatever. And I'm like, they're not perverts. In many cases, they actually come to their activism because they're alienated from sexuality, from their own sexuality. Like the last thing they're thinking about is having sex with people in many cases. Do you ever feel like I, I have to go and say, no, 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 don't say that in my name? Oh, yeah, sure. I have to correct people all the time. I mean, some people look at trans people and see perverts. I look at them and I see gender nonconforming gay and autistic people. I mean, I, I tried on the conservative hat for a little while. I kind of came to realize, though, that I am just a bleeding heart liberal. You know, you were talking about, like, the different cancel cultures and, you know, the right and left. I, I have this idea that... I'll, I'll be repeatedly canceled on both right and the left as, as different parties sort of gain more power. I think we have the left that has sort of a lot more of this cultural institutional power at the moment. They can kind of flex their, uh, their purity tests on people, and that's what we're doing right now. That's kind of what the cancel culture we're seeing on the left is. But I, I do see a lot of like this, the right wing getting a little more emboldened, the social conservatives, the religious conservatives, and I'm a pretty staunch atheist, and so I've published some articles Same. about atheism on my Substack because I think I think this is going to be another conversation that we're going to need to have once the right gets a little more cultural power, a little more institutional power, and I'm fully expecting just to be exiled 100%. from the Same. from the conservative side. You know, right now we're friends, we're buddy buddy because you know oh, we can just agree to disagree on the religion stuff because we kind of we're talking about the gender stuff, but once they have power, like oh no, we're getting we're getting canceled from that side too. Like once they get the power, then everyone wants to be part of the big group. They can start flexing their purity tests on their side. And I just see this, you know, as a centrist. This is back and forth. Me not trying to play sides, just trying to play, you know, make make the calls as I see them. 
but that's just going to land us in the zone of perpetual yeah. cancelization. There's, there's certain issues I avoid altogether, like the bathroom stuff. Like, I don't care. If I use a public bathroom, I'm not going to know. I don't look at people. I don't make eye contact. I get in and out really quickly. I don't care if trans women use the ladies' bathroom. But online, if I say something like that, I mean, you get mobbed. we got to wrap up. What's on tap for the rest of the day? Hey, did you know there is actually a fire event today? Fire meaning, tell us what fire is. Foundation of Individual Rights and Expression. An academic free speech group. I just noticed the sticker on your laptop and there is actually an event today where they're handing out free hot chicken. People who are listening, could you both tell me what's the best one-stop internet address to follow your work? To follow my work, it's going to be realitieslaststand.com. That's my substack. And then, you know, I post everything on my Twitter, which is at swipe right, and that's W-R-I-G-H-T. Do you still have the Instagram account where, like, it's pictures of you in the gym with your shirt off and stuff like that? I still have that account, <laughs> but uh, the pictures are still up. Christina, where can people go for your work? I'm Buttons Lives on Twitter, Instagram, and I have a substack that is buttonslives.news. B-U-T-T-O-N-S-L-I-V-E-S. Thank you very much, and thanks to both of you for meeting me here at Flat Tire Diner. Appreciate it. Thanks for getting the tab. Yeah, thank you. Did you like your French toast? Yeah, I was a little high carb, but, you know. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 